Well, this morning, uh, you can turn to Psalm 34 if you haven't. It's good to follow along. It's 22 verses long, and we'll need to move through it at a, at a decent uh, pace in order to, to get through all of that, which reminds me to take out my clock and make sure I do do that. Let's just do this real quick. Uh, this psalm, I, was, I actually just mentioned it to Julie this morning. This psalm is so loaded with amazing and potent truth, immediately it feels... Uh, you just feel inadequate trying to trying to preach through a psalm like this. There are some passages that are just extra weighty. This is one of those, and so we'll we'll do our best and be done by lunchtime this morning. But it's it's an amazing passage. It repays our meditation uh, time and time again. Um, but but we'll set the context for it like this. Uh, this morning, as you know, we're we're continuing our studies in the book of First Samuel by not studying First Samuel. Uh, so we've been studying First Samuel for a number of weeks. But we dipped out a couple weeks ago, uh, first to study Psalm 56, and now to study this psalm, Psalm 34. And we, and we left 1 Samuel's narrative in the context of David being pursued by King Saul. We remember the setting there. Saul is the king of Israel, although he's been rejected by God. David has been anointed by God as king. Saul is threatened by David's prowess, his military prowess, the fact that people love him and sing songs about him. And Saul is absolutely committed to retaining his royal position. Uh, even though the Lord has told him that is not his position anymore, Saul is stubborn in his disobedience. And so in order to attempt to retain his spot, Saul has determined to kill David. He's uh, trying to hunt David down. And so we find David fleeing. Uh, and as David has been on the run, uh, by the end of chapter 21, he found himself in the, in the city of Gath. It's a Philistine city. It's the hometown of Goliath, uh, the giant whom David had slayed earlier in the book of Samuel. And David's gone there trying to escape Saul's reach. Uh, presumably, he's thinking to himself that if Saul's after him, he won't pursue him all the way into enemy territory. At least he'll be safe there. Uh, David maybe figures that, that as a mercenary on the run from Saul, he can find some favor with the king of Gath, uh, whose name is Achish. However, uh, David is recognized as the... Uh, Israelite war hero that he is. And of course, his, his status as an Israelite war hero is based upon the fact that he has conquered the Philistines time and time and time again. And so somebody recognizes David as this war hero and reports to the king of Gath. David, as we learned in our studies, is taken into custody and, uh, and he is obviously in a very fearful position. It's the only time in the Davidic narrative that we're told David is afraid of any person or people group. Normally others are afraid of David, but David is afraid here, and, uh, and rightly so. Obviously, they would love to, to kill David, put him to death. He's the one who's brought so much havoc to the Philistines in his, in his battle victories. Um, however, David uh, presumes that there is this way out. He pretends to be insane. He pretends to have lost his mind. He's scribbling on walls. He's letting uh, saliva dribble down his beard. And the king of Gath, he makes that funny statement there by the end of the narrative. He says, uh, don't I have enough crazy people around me? Why did you bring me another one? Just, just get him out of here. So, so humanly speaking, David's ploy works. However, uh, looking at things uh, from a divine perspective, David recognizes it's God's providence and God's kindness that has brought him to this place of rescue. Uh, the Lord didn't give him up to be uh, put to death or worse even in Gath, but instead he's been rescued. Uh, but it's out of, those two, out of those experiences in Gath that David wrote two psalms. He wrote Psalm 56, which we looked at a few weeks ago, uh, where David is reflecting on the fear he's in the midst of experiencing as he's in custody in Gath. And then he also writes Psalm 34 on the occasion of his deliverance. 
Uh, and that's the psalm that we're going to look at today. So David has now been delivered, and he's writing this psalm as he reflects on God's uh, rescuing power in his life. And, and as we come to Psalm 34, it's very interesting because we would accept, expect Psalm 34 to, to reflect a kind of devotional uh, elation in David's life as he turns to the Lord with extraordinary expressions of thanksgiving and, and, and praise because God has saved him. We would expect David, and at least I expected as I came to the psalm to study it, that more of this vertical orientation in David's life. Oh Lord, I cannot believe the glories of what you've worked for me. And while David does express praise, we'll talk very, very specifically about David's attitude of praise in all of this. What is interesting is that as David reflects on his rescue, instead of adopting this, this kind of devotional mentality, vertically oriented in worship toward God, he actually reflects from a posture of, of instruction. He, he's teaching the people who will listen about how the Lord works and what He's done. So it's a very horizontally oriented psalm in a sense that it is an instructional psalm. It's not a psalm of thanksgiving, as many psalms are classified. It's actually a psalm of instruction. And one of the ways we, we know this is, is not only the fact that the Lord is never directly addressed in this psalm. David never says, O Lord, and then, and then something else. He speaks about the Lord many times, but he never addresses the Lord. So, so that's part of the way we know that. Secondly, this is an acrostic poem in Hebrew. So each successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet is, is the heading of each stanza. And when, the Hebrew, when Hebrew poetry does this, that's an indicator that it's, it's instructional in nature. It's meant to be a lesson for us. And so we come to this, uh, maybe as I came to it initially, having read it many times, but you're always surprised when you get into the depths of study what's, what can really be going on in these passages. I came to this expecting a kind of devotional elation, and instead what we have is this very a critical reflection that David gives us on his rescue. It's a, it's a reflection that's meant to recalibrate us, in a sense. And, and I was thinking about this need for recalibration this week as I was, as I was uh, reading this psalm and even being convicted by it myself. Um, I, was, I was thinking about it because Julia has recently sent me a link to a, a motorcycle website that's become quite dangerous for me. It's, it, it's, a, it's called iconicmotorbikes.com. I already shared this plate with Trent earlier in the week, uh, but I can't seem to stay off the site. All they have are these really, really great old old motorcycles for sale, and, and, they're, and they're beautiful. But so many of them are so nostalgic for me, so I've got stuck looking at all of these. I remember owning you know, a couple that are on there, and, and I remember about those bikes just how, how temperamental they were as, as carbureted machines. If you went into a high-altitude situation, like over the coast range, they'd perform strange, and you're always having to recalibrate them. So, so I've been looking at these bikes and reliving some, some situations from my own history, as nostalgia will cause you to do. And then I'm reading this poem, and I'm thinking, that there's a sense in which this poem comes to us with that kind of recalibration power. It comes to us in saying we, we, we can get, in a sense, temperamental in our Christian living. We can find ourselves in places that aren't aligned with a, with a smooth running recognition of truth. And instead we find ourselves jostled a bit uh, by the way life comes to us and by the ways we're reacting. And a psalm like this, it's instructional, it's straightforward, it comes to us and it just helps reset things. So, so, so that, that's really what we have here. And, and now you know the two big things I've been thinking about this week, motorcycles and this psalm. Uh, but, but, but I think they can go together. You just take it for what it is. Uh, what, what we'll do is we'll look at this, and we'll look at this under a heading that would get me a C in preaching class. But I'm going to give you the, 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 the title here, uh, what we can call this psalm. It's too long, but 
so it goes. If we were going to title this psalm, we, we, we would call it instructional reflection on the occasion of David's rescue. That's what's going on here. He's, he's reflecting personally, but he's doing it in an instructional way after God has delivered him. And all of that is important as we think about how this, how this plays out. So, with all that said, uh, let's start in on verses 1 to 3. And in verses 1 to 3, David begins, as, as so often it seems the Psalms begin, he begins with this call to, to comprehensive praise. It's a call to comprehensive praise. There's, there's this call to, to praise the Lord for everybody all the time. That's what David is doing there in those first three verses. So the Lord at all times. And listen to the comprehensiveness of this. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt His name together. So all the time, for all of David's hearers, he's saying, let's proclaim the greatness of God. Let's be in this posture of worship. Now, we know from the 1 Samuel 21 context that David had been in this very fearful condition. And Psalm 56 makes that very clear as well. David reflects on his fear there. He's going to reference his fear again here. Um, and, and by the time we get to this psalm, on the, on the other side of David's deliverance, David is in no way minimizing the depth of hardship that he can identify with. It's just interesting to note this throughout this psalm. So, for example, in this psalm we have a recognition of the circumstances that are, that are fearful in verse 4. David references deep trouble in verse 6. By the time we get to verse 18, he's speaking about being brokenhearted, crushed in spirit, uh, circumstances that even threaten our physical person in verse 20. So this poem is no stranger to the manifold ways in which extraordinary hardship can be experienced in our lives and described in our lives. It's a poem that embraces an honest apprehension of difficulty in, in a certain way. And now we'll, we'll nuance that by the end, but, but he's very honest. In fact, verse 19, one who is righteous, what? One who is righteous has many adversities. Okay, so things are realistic. There's a realistic baseline here. David is no stranger to, to deep, dark kinds of trouble. And yet, how does David begin his song? Well, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. And then he calls everyone who's listening to join him in this kind of worship. So, so, so those are quite the, the comprehensive statements to make. All the time, always, I'll be praising and you should be praising too. So what David is telling us is on this side of rescue from his circumstances, he's saying that no matter what I face, I will always declare the greatness of the Lord. I'm always going to boast in the Lord, and you should join me in that. So there's this comprehensive praise. David's reflecting on the relief that the Lord has worked for him, rescuing him, bringing him out of that captivity, and he's compelled to praise. But if we're listening closely, this can rub us a bit. Because in short, David is saying from his place of rescue now, he's, he's saying whether the days are terrifying or whether they are delightfully relieving all the time, I'm going to be saying that God is great and you should be saying that too. And we hear that, and especially if we hear that from the midst of a trial of our own where we're still waiting for relief from the Lord, we hear that and we think, well, isn't that a nice sentiment for David to express in his rescue poem, right? 
You speak about always praising the Lord all the time. His praise is always on your lips. You speak that way, David, but it's easy for you to say that because you're on the other side of it now. You've been delivered. It's like sitting across from that friend who isn't in the thick of it and them telling you it's going to be okay. And you appreciate that they're saying it's going to be okay, but there's that voice in the back of your mind going, you have no idea what this is really like. It's a nice expression. It's a nice sentiment, but, but you, don't, you don't really get it. And we can feel like that here in the, in, the, in the beginning of this psalm because David's been delivered and we can find ourselves saying, I'm still in the midst of a trial. I'm still dealing with the fear or the crushed spirit or whatever it may be in my life. Here I am. And let me tell you, David, this praise the Lord at all times thing is not the easiest aspect of my spiritual life to exercise. Praise the Lord at all times is easy for you to do on the other side of the rescue you just came through. You're obviously in a happy place, but here I am in the midst of it and I don't feel particularly worshipful. And we can identify with that kind of response. It's honest. It's easy to praise the Lord sometimes, like here when David's finally through it. But if I were left to myself in certain seasons of life and in my natural condition, I would say it differently than David says it here. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. I'm a little more comfortable saying, I will bless the Lord when the Lord makes things go my way in my timing. That's what I'm really comfortable praising. David says his praise will always be on my lips. I'd rather say his praise will be on my lips some of the time, maybe even most of the time, but not all the time. But wouldn't that be an easier psalm to sing? We can be in the midst of hardship and think to ourselves, this worship all the time thing is just not realistic because I'm in the thick of it and that means that I am not in a posture of praise. In fact, in that that place, we can even give ourselves permission sometimes to, to turn our faces away from the Lord. Oh, this is just a dark spiritual season for me right now. The Lord doesn't really seem to be doing what I'm asking, so praising Him, or even like David calls for here, joining in a public kind of way, coming to church for corporate worship. That's just not where I'm at or where I'm going to be right now. David talks a big game, but it's easy to speak that way on the other side of experiencing relief. I can't do that now. I'm still in the thick of it. To which David would respond, you know, if we were sitting across at lunch with him, and we were bringing these things up to him about his psalm. We were giving him a, crit- a critique. Let me just talk about your poetry, David. I give it a three out of five. Here's why. Right? If, we were, if we were speaking to David about this, I think David would respond by saying, did you forget so soon uh, about how I wrote in Psalm 56? Because in, in Psalm 56, he sings about his condition before he's rescued. Do you remember how he talked about that in Psalm 56, his situation there? Among other things, David says, a man is trampling me. He fights and oppresses me all day long. That was David's situation then, and he wasn't rescued yet. He was, he was being trampled all the time. He said, all day long. Remember that? All the time. All day long, David was saying. And what did David do in Psalm 56? Not from a place of rescue, but from a place of trampling. What did David say? When I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God whose word I, what? Pray. Still praising, even while he's being trampled. So, so David's call to worship here. Isn't a call to worship that's dependent on good days? And David himself has lived that out. It's a call to worship that transcends good and bad days both. And, and I wonder if you need to be renewed in that this morning. I, I, this, I needed to be renewed in this this week. Right? I needed to be renewed in saying things like, Lord, no matter how much these things weigh me down, I'm going to say you are great. I will say, I'm weak, you're strong, I will gather together with your people and exalt you because of who you are, and that transcends all the circumstances that I'm facing in the moment. I'm going to have this vertical orientation to my life and respond to this call to worship for reasons that extend beyond the immediacy of what I'm feeling in the moment. 
So, so David begins with this call to comprehensive praise in verses 1 to 3, not dependent on immediate circumstances. He's praising in Psalm 56 when he's in the thick of it. He's praising in Psalm 34 when he's rescued from it. I will say he's, he's telling us, in effect, no matter the day, you are great, O Lord. And in fact, I'm going to gather with your people and proclaim that same truth. And so we can just be renewed in that ourselves, that posture of comprehensive praise uh, which will be grounded in the bigness of the Lord's rescue, to be sure, as we'll see as we keep going here. But there's a, uh, there's a recalibration that can begin for our own heart. And then, and then next, if we move from that to verses 4 to 7, uh, David moves from instruction in this comprehensive praise to now recount uh, something more of his personal experience. He, he recalls his personal experience for us. But just notice as we look at this, how he actually goes back and forth between his experience and all, all of God's people's experience. My experience, all of God's people's experience. Just no, notice how he does that here. There's this comprehensive theme that runs through the whole psalm. Everybody's involved here. Um, so, so verse 4, if you look at that, he says, I sought the Lord and He answered me and rescued me from all my fears. More comprehensiveness. Rescued me from all my fears. Interestingly, the word fear there isn't the normal word for fear in Hebrew. This is a fear word that only shows up about three times in the Old Testament. And it's a fear word that communicates a kind of deep and abiding dread. Uh, it, it, it's the terror of of a harmful and, and yet unknown future. So it's kind of like an, an unrelenting ominousness that's hanging over your life at the moment. That's, that's what this fear reflects here. And, and David speaks of God delivering him from that kind of fear. No doubt we, we, can, we can see him experiencing that as, as, as he's there in Gath. What is going to happen to me next? It would have been extraordinary dread that he was experiencing. Um, and so, so the Lord delivers David from this level of dread when he's released. And, and David says that in verse 4. And then immediately in verse 5, David says, The Lord is this kind of deliverer for all who look to Him. You notice how he immediately jumps now to everybody. So me, the Lord's done this for me. But all who look to Him are radiant. And, and that radiant word is important uh, as, it, as it juxtaposes the, the fear word that David has just been delivered out of. Because that radiant word in verse 5 is a word that's used in Isaiah, for example, to speak of a mother's joy after being reunited with a child who she thought was lost forever. And that's this huge word of relief, this kind of radiance. It's, it's the opposite of all things dreadful and fearful. So, so David is delivered from dread, and not just David, but all who look to the Lord, what are they? Well, they're radiant in this way. And in effect, it's as if the smile of God and His rescuing kindness has affected them, and now we're, we're smiling back to God. Our countenance is lifted up. In, the, in, this, in this kind of sense. So, so David speaks about his own deliverance. Then he speaks about how God delivers others like this too. And then back to David in verse 6. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. Comprehensiveness again. All his troubles. So first delivered from all his fears. Now saved from all his troubles. That's David. And how about everybody else? Well, verse 7. The angel of the Lord which is a way the Old Testament often refers to unique manifestations of the Lord as He comes and reveals Himself to His people, helps His people. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and rescues them. So you see what's, what's happening here with the back and forth. David is relieved. Everybody's relieved like David. David is relieved. All of God's people are relieved like David. We see the, the inclusive nature of what David's doing here and that he's saying this deliverance experience that I've had is the deliverance experience of all of God's people. This is how God works for everybody. He's telling us that He's not in a kind of exclusive God will rescue me sort of club. 
but, but he's seeing his own experience as existing in solidarity with others who trust in the Lord and experience God's rescuing kindness in this way. So, so David is sharing his experience that this poor man cried and the Lord heard him. J David shares his own personal experience only to say all, the, all who look to the Lord experience this kind of, of radiant relief. And in a way, David reminds us of the fact that, 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 that we, we, need this kind of, we need this kind of recalibration and that David's not in an exclusive God will rescue me club. And we need that reminder because sometimes we can face circumstances, uh, even circumstances that are similar to those that others face. And we can see the Lord bring them out of their circumstances. But as we reflect on our own, we can live with that kind of Eeyore mentality that says, oh, I see what the Lord's done over there. Isn't that nice for them? He'll probably never really do that for me. But it's nice he did it for them. But David is checking that kind of sentiment in our hearts. There's no room for, oh, he saved them, but he probably won't save me. David's turning that on his head because he's saying that his experience is not exclusive in any way. While his experience is obviously unique in Gath, his experience of God's rescue is not exclusive in any way because this rescuing thing, this relieving thing, is who God is and what he does for all his people. And so again, we can be reoriented by that. The Lord, the Lord gives grace to, to, to so many, we can think. And here I am, stuck with this dread going on. God does it for others, but not for me. And we have to be able to say that's a non-truth. That's a non-truth. The Lord is for all His people. He is the one who camps around us. He's present with us in order to bring relief according to His good and wise timing and purpose, to be sure. But He's, he's there uh, to bring rescue for all His people. So, so after David's call to comprehensive praise, he shares his own experience, but he does so in such a way that his, his personal experience is mushed with the experiences that we all have as God's people. I've been delivered, you'll be delivered. I've been delivered, you, you'll be delivered. This is what God does for all who trust in him. He's the delivering God. So that's verses 4 to 7. And then from verses 8 to 14, uh, the instructional element of things uh, ramp up a bit. Uh, because because David David becomes very direct in his teaching here, where we where we move from uh, him him recounting his personal experience to now extending this uh, what we could call an instructional invitation, an instructional invitation. So so think this out with me. If you look at verse eight, first of all, uh, when we get into verse eight, it's as if David can sense his listeners are are um, maybe feeling a little bit of tension with where David has taken things so far. It's as if David can see that person out in front of him who's, who's deep in sorrow and maybe a bit, a bit sour toward the Lord, not wanting to worship. He can see them out there at his poetry reading, sitting in the chairs. Or David maybe can see the person in front of him who's cynical, who's, who's been through hard stuff and has decided the Lord doesn't care because if the Lord did care, he would have done things a lot differently than things are going for me in my life right now. And as verse 8 begins, it's as if David can tell that the joy and radiant countenance of his poetry is, is, just, is just sitting a little, uh, maybe a little sour in the room at the moment. And so what does he do? Well, he extends this invitation, starting in verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. As if he's looking out and he can say, I can, I can tell by your, fa by your faces that you need to start by sampling some of the goodness of the Lord that I've been speaking to you about. 
It's very interesting that David doesn't start by saying, get all your theology right about the ways the Lord works through dark circumstances. Make sure you have a solid understanding of the book of Job and whatever all that means. And then we can start talking about what it means to really follow the Lord on the other side of rescue or something like that. No, David says, just pause a minute. I'd like to invite you to try something. Just have a sample. Just taste and see that the Lord is good. He's he's saying, just sample how a person flourishes as they take refuge in the Lord in verse 8. Verse 9, David says, you, his people who fear the Lord. So he's talking to people who know the Lord, but maybe are, are on, the, on the drift a little bit. He says, those of you who are, who are fearing the Lord, those of you who are saying, God is God and I'm not God. That's ultimately what it means to fear the Lord. He's saying, just experience how those who rest in the Lord will lack nothing. More comprehensiveness. They'll lack nothing. Even lions. So the most self-sufficient of predators. Young lions. Right? Even they go hungry. But sample this, David says, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Right? More comprehensiveness. It's, it's bold of David on the, on the one hand to speak this way. It's very confident. Because David doesn't look out at a room full of critical faces and say, and, and say you know, you, you must get all this figured out now. I can tell there's confusion. You need to go back uh, with a whole bunch of your books and work through all of these things because I can tell you're not understanding. He, do, he doesn't say something like, make sure every, every conclusion is questioned and every question is answered and then you'll, you'll reach the grand theological determination that the Lord is good in His ontological perfection of His holy eternal presence or anything like that. He doesn't go there at all. all. And he could go there because he goes there in other Psalms. But he doesn't go there here. He knows his audience. He knows the present and residual sorrows and pains. He knows the, the resistance that can be bound up in our hearts at times. So all he says is taste and see. That nothing is forced on us in this poetry. It's a gentle invitation to something. Give yourself permission to come and sample for yourselves the goodness of the Lord. And that's something we need to be renewed in from time to time, isn't it? We, we can face those seasons where we feel like the goodness of God is absent from our circumstances, and so we distance ourselves from Him even further, maybe because we just don't understand, we can't comprehend, we can't put together what exactly is going on. David calls us back. He doesn't say get it all figured out. He says just taste, just a little bit. To which, to which we have to, to ask in response, well, how exactly do we do that, David? You know, what does it look like to to taste and see that the Lord is good. What did you have in mind in your instructional program? And verse 11, David answers that. He says, I'll teach you. So we have some wisdom literature speak here, beginning in verse 11. The text literally reads, Come, sons, listen to me. It's like David's pulling a page right out of Proverbs. Here's how you taste and see, David is going to tell us. And it's interesting where David places this instructional emphasis here. First of all, you just notice he says, I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. And we think, well, what in the world does he mean by that? Well, well, to fear the Lord isn't the kind of fear where David dreaded the Philistines in Gath or that kind of thing. We just need to understand that to fear the Lord is, is to orient ourselves toward God in such a way that acknowledges, uh, not least of all with trembling, that he is God and I am not. That, that's a summative way we can understand what it means to fear the Lord. So we're saying, you know, he's the righteous one, I'm the humble and needy one. These are the ones David is going to be able to address. If we're, if we're proud and arrogant, if we're boastful, we're not going to have the posture of heart that comes under the Lord's way and finds the good that's there there for us to taste. If we're, if we're proud, that's never going to happen. 
He's saying, here's for the one who fears the Lord. He, 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 this is the person who's, who's not pretending to know everything, who's yielding to the Lord. That, that's what it means to fear the Lord. So David says, I'm going to teach you what it is to sample the goodness of God in all of this. And this lesson is for a specific person. Teach you how to fear the Lord. It's for the one who desires an enjoyable life. Who wants to delight in life. It's very interesting. This is the only place in Scripture where we're called to delight in life and not delight in the Lord. Isn't that interesting? So, 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 so what David is doing is he's setting the context for the whole of a life that exists under God uh, that, that, it, that is not dull, it's not dim, it's not filled ultimately with sorrows and hopelessness, but there's this life of flourishing, this happy life. The CSB translates it happy. The word there is really more of a flourishing word. There's this fullness of life for those who come and, and taste and enjoy the way of the Lord. And, and so David says, if you're a person who wants this life that's flourishing, if you want to taste the goodness of, that God gives, if you're that person, then here's the lesson for you. And again, it starts in an interesting place in verse 13. Where does he start? Be careful with your tongue. Want to taste the goodness of God? Be careful with the words that you're saying. It's an interesting way to start. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. It seems like a strange way to start this, this tasting section, but, but upon reflection, it's, it's so obvious that part of God's goodness that he gives to us in this life, it is found in this truth. How, how many sorrows do we face when our tongue remains unchecked? How many? I face many. Right? To restrain our speech to what is holy and upright and true, as defined by God himself, that is to taste his goodness. David must have found some humor in the fact that the, the tasting the goodness of God and the taming of the tongue go together. Isn't that just, just kind of a funny parallel there? So, so the organ of taste is the organ of experiencing the blessing, right? The tongue. To, to exercise self-control in the words I say. To hold back words that would hurt and harm rather than build. And also just to recognize, as James points out, that if somebody can bridle their tongue, what can they do? For the person who can bridle their tongue, that, that, that's the kind of person that has capacity to have self-control in their whole entire body. Right? And so as there's this call to self-control there in terms of the things we speak. Resist speaking ill and instead use words that, that heal and bring life. In that, we'll start to taste and see that the Lord is good. And along with that, uh, our, 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 our experience of God's goodness isn't just there as we check our speech in certain ways, but we're also called to exercise this general posture here that we have in, in verse 14, where, where we're orienting ourselves toward the good as God defines it. So seek peace and pursue it, he says. Right? In other words, we, 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 as we have righteous priorities with our words instead of destructive and harmful priorities, and as we seek to promote well-being instead of cutting someone down, as we do this, the favor uh, of God's goodness will begin to permeate our lives in significant ways, and we, and we see how that works. Strife begins to be replaced by harmony. Seek peace. It's interesting, he doesn't say, seek your own agenda. So often, just in our, in our unchecked thinking, that's, that's how we think uh, the experience of flourishing is going to come. If I can promote my own agenda, if I can get my way implemented, if I can impose my will, that's when I'm really going to finally feel at rest. Quite frankly, when everybody else falls in line with the goodness of me. But this is totally counter to that here, what, what, what the psalmist says. He's telling us we're going to, we're going to seek peace 
And this peace, of course, this is shalom. This is the Lord's peace. He doesn't say seek your own agenda. He says seek the well-being that comes from God. Which will just, as a side note, we know that's ultimately defined by a sacrificial love that took God's Son to the cross. That's the climax of that peace. So when we're thinking about seeking peace, we're not thinking about uh, ways we can, we, we can, we can be uh, making sure everything is embraced just the way we want it. But instead, seeking peace is a matter of giving of ourselves sacrificially to those in positions of need. And as we do that, uh, we're seeking that, that kind of harmony that comes as we're willing to give, even, even when the getting doesn't really come our way right away. So there's this orientation of life that's entirely different than what we might at first think. Here we are checking our speech. I'm only using my words for the building up and the doing good. And here I am checking my actions. I'm doing good. I'm promoting peace in people's lives. I'm seeking harmony where I see there could be places for a rift, places for strife, places for sorrow to be exacerbated further by the speech I make. I'm going to resist that and instead I'm going to sacrificially work to help even if that means taking offense to myself. That's what love is, isn't it? Overlooks offenses. And David's saying as we, as, we, as we pursue this, we're going to end up tasting God's way. Or we're going to end up seeing that actually His way is good. And we know from our own experience that this is just true. As we reorient ourselves with the priorities that God places in our lives, those, those restraints of wisdom, they don't leave us in a place feeling uh, shut down and small, but they leave us in broad places, as the psalmist will say, than in other poems. They leave us in places where relationships that might otherwise be destroyed now are flourishing. They leave us in places uh, where hardship with, uh, with situations, whether it be at work or whether it be in family life, whatever it may be, the way the Lord orients our life through His wisdom and, and life-giving Word is not to ultimately find us in a place of needing rescue, way down in the troubles that we can get ourselves into, but we find ourselves in places that are flourishing. They're happy. We're in a place of well-being. We're not worried we're going to be fired tomorrow because of how we mouthed off to our boss on Friday. And so the psalmist, David's just being very practical here. Taste God's good way, and this is how we can taste it. He's giving us instruction, instruction in this. And then, as, as he keeps going, he, he finishes this section, uh, not only talking about a tame tongue and the pursuit of peace. Here's how we can begin to taste God's good way. Um, but, but he finishes this section by recalling God's comprehensive benefits. This psalm is just so full of, of alls and everies and, and all the times. So, so if you look at the last verses, 15 to 22, David goes now to, to speak about the comprehensive benefits that come as we align ourselves with God, as we taste and see that He's good. And as we're walking in His way, he says, let, let me tell you about His benefits. And as you look at those verses, you see, first of all, that the Lord, He hears, He sees, He cares, He acts, all of these kinds of things for those who are yielded to the Lord, His holy ones. In other words, those who are not perfect, but those who are saying, I have fellowship with the Lord, I'm pursuing a life of repentance, I'm pursuing a life that's aligned with the, the word God has revealed. Uh, for those who are oriented toward God, His eyes are toward them. There's a dad walking up to, a, to the playground by our house this week, and he had two little kids, maybe two and four years old, and they were running up to the playground. He was trying to keep up, but, but they were in and, out of the, uh, in and out of the driveways, almost into the street and back, and, and I, was, I was just amazed at how he was able to keep pace and keep track all the way up the street. I was very nervous for him, but, but he, he was just on it. The whole way up, his, he never lost track of where they were at. He was absolutely locked on with his kids. The whole way up, stopped them at the street, keep going up. He was, he was, his eyes were on them. And in, in a sense, that's what's reflected here when the psalmist tells us that God's eyes are upon us. 
God's attention is upon us. We're not weaving in a way that He doesn't notice or going in a way that, that He's not aware. He's looking toward His children. It's an enormous benefit that comes from knowing the living God. We're never removed from His gaze. He's vigilant. So the Lord has taught us in all these beneficial kinds of ways. His eyes are on the righteous. He hears us as we cry for help. He's against those who do evil, so much so that, that those who are set against Him, they'll be wiped from the earth one day, verse 16. Right? Wiped from the land. But the Lord rescues the righteous from, here it is, all their troubles. Right? And again, we have this righteous word occurring in here time and time again. Sinclair Ferguson, he says, the righteous in the Psalms, they're not, they're not the clinically correct goody-goodies. I like that. The righteous in the Psalms are not the clinically correct goody-goodies. Instead, the righteous are people humbled by their weakness and looking repentantly toward the Lord. Right? And so the, the Lord, He comes and He rescues the righteous out of all their troubles. Um, these are the ones the Lord's helped. So much so that by the time we're in the last stanza, uh, he says, well the, well, the righteous one has many adversities. Verse 19, the Lord rescues him comprehensively. The Lord rescues him from, the, from them all. And then he says, not even a bone will be broken. Not even a bone will be broken. And, and, and it's right here where we have to say to David, you're, you're a poetic genius, David. We love the poetry. We even appreciate the hyperbole. We, we appreciate how a poet can exaggerate from time to time. But we get to the very end of this and we think about the benefits that are there for those who are, who are turned toward the Lord. And we have to say, David, for our own sake, we can only take the overreaching so long. Right? Because there's a sense in which we read this poem and we think we appreciate the bigness, but he is overreaching constantly all the way through this song. All the way, just look back at it. Look at all these things. He rescued me from all my fears. Guess what? When David got rescued from Gath, what did he have to look forward to? Saul's garrison of assassins still. Is David rescued from all his fears when he's rescued from Gath? David is not rescued from all his fears when he's rescued from Gath. How about, how about uh, verse 5? Their faces will never be ashamed. Very much in the narrative of 1 Samuel 21, there's a point made that David acts in a shameful way. The dribbling down his beard, do you remember that? The contextual element culturally for all of that? David has just been ashamed in the context of Gath. He says, we'll never be ashamed. 20 minutes ago, you were ashamed. Right? Keep, keep going through here. Um, the, the Lord saved him from all his troubles. Right? Again, Saul's still out there. How about, how about the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them? Guess what? Jonathan, Saul's son, righteous Jonathan, he's going to die right alongside Saul in the same battle. Spoiler alert by the end of 1 Samuel. Is Jonathan rescued from all his trouble? Jonathan is murdered on the battlefield just like Saul. Right? Okay, so a little tension there, David. Uh, how about those who fear him lack nothing? In fact, they won't go hungry. Well, I mean... It, you know, you just told us the story in 1 Samuel about how you were really hungry and had to go eat the showbread and you had to get it from the, from the priest at, at Nob. You remember that? You were just hungry maybe two days ago. Right? So, so we're going through this and we're thinking, David, we appreciate the big speech, the excitement that you have. We remember you are just rescued, so you're all, you're all a little excited right now. We appreciate that. But, but, you know, the face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory from them uh, from the earth. I'm pretty sure Saul is still in his royal station, and you're the one living out in the in the in the rocky crags right now. So, 
seems that you got stuff a little bit out of balance. We appreciate the poetry, but things are a little bit out of balance. To which, again, if we're sitting across the lunch table with David, he's going to say to us, oh, but you've misunderstood something very important. You've misunderstood the fact that while I am a prophet, as, as the, as, uh, while, I'm a, while I'm a poet, as Acts uh, will tell us, David is also a prophet of his circumstances, but he's always constantly, David is speaking about it, the immediacy of his, of his circumstances, but he's also causing the reader to be compelled forward to something much bigger than the immediacy of his circumstances. Now, now, there's something absolutely and, and immediately accurate about this psalm. All of us, we've had experiences. I know some of your experiences, and we can say, in, in a sense, the Lord has delivered me from all my trouble. I mean, you should have seen me then. And look at me, look at what the Lord has brought me through. It is really amazing. There's a sense in which we can say that as we read this psalm, but there's a sense in which this tension exists, and this tension is meant to exist. Because this psalm has a bigger purpose than speaking to us about the immediacy of the kind of rescue we have uh, in, the, in the context of our life. We know this just because in the last two verses, we're told that death and life are there for us. This is amped way up in those last two verses. The evil get death and punishment. The Lord redeems the life of His servant. We have Exodus language there. We're redeemed as God's people. And then, and then, we've got this other just pesky line in here. And that line is is uh, there with, with the bones not being broken. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. That's a weird, that's a, that's a weird thing to say. Why, why is David bringing that up right here? It's not, it's not anywhere else in the Psalms. Why is David bringing that up? It's not a normal Hebrew poetic metaphor. But again, as we think about the picture of redemption we have in the Old Testament, that brings us back to the Exodus event. And as we think about the Exodus, we think about the Passover lamb. You remember that, that, uh, that whole situation where the blood of the Passover lamb was painted over the doors when the angel of death came through the camp or came through the, the land? The people who had the blood over the doorposts were, were saved and didn't die, right? And Passover lamb, part of the preparation of the Passover lamb is that it must have no broken bones. No broken bones. So, so, so David, in the use of the word redemption, in the use of this Passover lamb language, he's taking us back to the biggest event to date of God's redemption. And as we read this, we realize that not just that event in the past is something that this, that this triggers for us, but realizing David is actually pointing us forward as a prophet to an even bigger event that we look forward to in the reality of what Jesus is going to accomplish. Because when John goes to write his gospel account and he speaks about the guards coming around the crosses to break the legs of the men so that they would die quicker as they hung there on the cross, he tells us, he quotes this verse, and he says that Jesus was already dead that they, when they came, so that this scripture would be fulfilled. Not any of his bones were broken. Ultimately, the rescue that this psalm is pointing forward to is the rescue that's there for us, the redemption that's there for us in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, all the alls start making sense. All the time, always, rescued me from all my fears. What does Paul say in Colossians 2? Delivered us from all our sins. The comprehensiveness of the rescue we have in Jesus Christ in the climax of redemption, as verse 22 tells us here, the Lord redeems the life of His servants and all who take refuge in Him will not be punished, will not be condemned. The climactic reality of that is felt through Jesus Christ as He applies His work to our lives and we are one day going to be the full recipients of rescue from all our trouble. All the bigness, all the hyperbole will be eternal fact for us because of what Jesus has done. And so we come to a psalm like this and we say, David, we appreciate the poetry. We can identify with the poetry, but it gets a little big for us. And he says, actually, it's not too big at all. 
Actually, the, the, the bigness is just perfect and the bigness is completely and totally, literally accurate. Through the ultimate Passover lamb, through the one who comes and dies in our place so we can be rescued from death, all the alls will come true. And that's the rescue that ultimately compels all of this. Why, why can we worship all the time? Why can we worship when the days are bad or when the days are good? Why, why would we even want to taste and see that the Lord is good if things are not going our way? Why would I want to engage with the Lord? Well, because, because we know the significance of what Christ has accomplished and the fact that nothing can separate us from that work and eternity is ours and eternity is secure. So what else could we do but praise all the time in all the ways with all God's people? Because this is what's secured for us in Christ. We're at rest. We're at peace. We've been rescued. And so we're thankful for a psalm like this because it just helps reorient us. I needed reorienting this week, and maybe you did too, but we see in these ways that the Lord comes to us and He reminds us that ultimately, ultimately our rest is found in the bigness of what He accomplishes through Christ, and it's a rest that's not exclusive. It's a rest that is inclusive for all who will come to Him and find what is offered there. There is this eternal, this eternal peace. And so we thank God for His Word. We thank God for the reminder of of Psalm 34. Let's pray. So Lord, we pray that you would give us uh, the grace to be encouraged by this this morning. We're thankful that you are our rescuer. We're thankful we have been rescued. We're thankful uh, that, that the, the bigness, the hyperbole, the seeming exaggeration of a psalm like this is ultimately going to be ours. Uh, you will rescue us from all our troubles. Ultimately, we will live with renewed bodies and resurrection life. Not one of our bones will be broken. And we know that's because of what you accomplished through Jesus, through his perfection, through his absolute and complete righteousness. And it's in him that we place our hope, we find our rest. We pray that we would be helped to turn to him afresh again this morning. We ask that in his name. Amen.